0: Folks, and welcome to another episode of Better. This is Dr. John Duffy. Um, Julie Duffy, my usual co-host, is not with me today, but with me is a very special guest, um, one of my very favorite writers. And I don't think I've ever been had the opportunity to tell him that. I have long admired David Camp. Uh, David, welcome.
1: Thank you, John, and I blush at your description.
0: <laughs> so I feel compelled to share a, a little bit of your background, because there's a lot I knew. Um, David, you and I met, um, I, and you probably don't know this, but remember this, but 30 years ago or so, when you were working at Spy Magazine, the underrated, most awesome Spy Magazine, right? Um, and then, if I if I have it right, you um, went on to write for Vanity Fair, and I've been reading you in Vanity Fair for years and years. And you have written about some of my favorite celebrities in depth and great detail. John Hughes, Kerry Washington, the Brill Building songwriters, which I think is so cool. Johnny Cash and Springsteen. Oh, my God, man. I could spend most of the hour and then some just asking about that. I did not know you were a lyricist.
1: Yeah, that's a relatively new development. Uh, Not in
0: life, meaning like
1: since I was a little kid, I loved song lyrics and I loved songs. Uh, But in the last few years, I've been working with John Leguizamo, who everyone knows is a great actor and comic. And uh, I worked with him on this great new musical comedy, which has the ridiculous title, Kiss My Aztec. I love that. (laughs) It's a lot of fun. And, you know, we, we had two great productions of it last year, uh, in Berkeley at Berkeley Rep and La Jolla Playhouse in uh, the San Diego area. And if and when live theater becomes a thing again, this <laughs> thing's going to come to Broadway. So kiss my tech folks. Remember it. Look out for it.
0: Look out for it. Seriously, I cannot wait. Um, we are, So you've written several books as well, including um, the Snobs Dictionary, the, the humor books, um, which Uh, My son has actually read all of, and I've read a couple of, uh, The United States of Arugula. And today we are talking about your newest book, Sunny Days, The Children's Television Revolution That Changed America. Um, David Mann, this this book um, was a one-sit read for me and kind of a joy to read and the way you write Um, so uh, in-depth. It seems like you really fall in love with your subject matter, and I've noticed that in your Vanity Fair pieces, but never more than in this book. What drew you to even write about children's television circa 1970?
1: Well, I actually conceived of this idea five years ago in uh, 2015, and even though nowadays we view 2015 as this Arcadian golden era that we'd all like to return to, <laughs> even, even then I sensed a certain brokenness to American society. That yeah, you know, we 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 knew that there was acute polarization and a kind of uh, intractability to uh, the you know the way things were working in government. And so so I was trying to think to uh, kind of ideate this idea of what's an American success story? What have I experienced in my lifetime that I can share the history of with others in an inspirational, but not corny inspirational way, like genuinely, like motivationally inspirational way? And the more I thought about it, John, the more I consider that era of children's television in which I grew up and in which you grew up too, Mm -hmm. because I hope I'm not I hope I'm not betraying anything to your audience by saying John and I are kind of the same age. You know, Doctor Duffy is no spring chicken, but anyway, so you and I, but 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 you and I grew up with these programs such as Sesame Street, Mister Rogers' Neighborhood, Marlo Thomas's Free to Be You and Me, uh, Zoom—not the teleconferencing platform, but the WGBH children's program—and um, uh, and and Schoolhouse Rock, things like that, Electric Company. I could go on and I do in the book but the point is is that as I looked at these programs John they constituted more than just a slate of children's educational programming that happened to debut somewhere between 1968 and 1975 together to me they constitute a social movement meaning they really represented a new view of childhood and to some degree a new view of parenting um, to respect children, to not patronize them, and to kind of teach these new ideas such as, as uh, multiculturalism and the idea of television itself could be used as an instruction. So I thought, no one's actually, there have been a lot of great books written about Sesame Street, for example, but no one has written about this group of programs and the people who created them as a social movement. And so I thought that's a good history to delve into. And that is indeed an American success story that perhaps by reviewing it, we can learn something from it that we can apply to today.
0: I love that. I did not know that you were kind of looking at it as an American success story, this kind of movement of children's programming. And it is striking. You you, you touch on a number of things that never crossed my mind here. In a way, I thought, this is going to be just a kind of nostalgic look back, um, but it's way, way more than that because um, I'm thinking about like the nature of that era, what the way our parents experienced it rather than the way you and I experienced it, right? Where you've got, you know, um, all sorts of, of civil unrest and King and Kennedy are both killed within months of each other and, um, and the Vietnam War is going on. And the idea that there are these people who are optimistic and idealistic and trying to do the right thing for very young children without strictly a profit model in mind is so striking and um, upbeat to me. It almost a couple of times, if I'm being completely honest with you, brought tears to my eyes I actually read part of this in the book in the car with my wife and um and I read her segments and a couple times got choked up with just the uh, all the positivity of it all which it, it kind of is raw and unfamiliar to me in this moment in time right now um what was that deliberate on your part or did you just kind of stumble upon like yeah, these people were really idealistic and optimistic and really wanted to make life better and l- help these young kids learn in a really unique way using this f- television format.
1: Well, you're asking, was it deliberate that I want to make Dr. John Duffy cry in his car? Yes! <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, absolutely. Um, well, first of all, I want to go back to your acknowledgement that you, you, you initially thought the book might just be a sort of nostalgic walk-down memory and I want to stress that that's okay, because part of the book, especially now in this crazy pandemic year we've had, is that people do crave comfort. And I don't poo-poo the reader who just wants to read this to say, "Oh God, that that was such a nice, healthy era." And and um, if I'm if I'm a Gen X person or someone like i a little closer to. Uh, the millennial side of Gen X, this, this book evokes fond memories, warm memories for me. That's okay. It's okay for it to be a soak in a nice, comforting, warm bath. Mm. All that said, there is this additional um, and very deliberate inspirational quality that I was aiming for in uh, in doing all the reporting. And um, to answer the, the second part of your question, yes, I was surprised by how much I was moved by the material because I was... Familiar vaguely with the outlines of that Sesame Street was started by a lady named Joan Gans Cooney. And I learned a little more about how she partnered with a a guy at the Carnegie Corporation named Lloyd Morissette. But yeah, the altruism of it is amazing. And it's you you question, like, why do people go into TV? Uh, Why do people go into the television business? And generally, the answer is um, either they're artistic. And they really they really have something to say, they want to express, or that they're kind of bit by the by the uh, glamour bug and they want to become kind of famous and kind of rich. Uh, sure. These people went into TV for the most radical reason i've ever I've ever thought of, which is to to help people and specifically to help children and even more specifically in the case of Sesame Street to help the least advantaged of children. The early years of Sesame Street were very specifically targeted at poor black kids, for lack of a better term, like Joan Gans Cooney, who I just mentioned. She was a documentary film producer at WNET, which is uh, New York City's public TV station. And her thing initially wasn't even about children. She wanted to create documentaries that sort of Shined a spotlight on uh, urban poverty, specifically uh, poverty in black neighborhoods like Harlem and Bedford-Stuyvesant, New York, and the South Side of Chicago. And and how can we alleviate uh, the, this poverty? How can we help? How can we help these neighborhoods? And Lloyd Morissette was a guy at the Carnegie Corporation who was specifically studying children's education and early childhood development, which at that time, the 60s, was still a new idea, the idea of early childhood development. and It was one of those great Reese's Peanut Butter Cup commercial moments where, hey, you put chocolate in my peanut butter. You put the <laughs> peanut butter in my chocolate. It is the perfect match. Joan Gans Cooney brought to the table her interest in poverty and inner city poverty. Lloyd Morissette brought to the table, and he was also a developmental psychologist. His interest in early childhood development and applying the lessons of psychology to hey, could we use television to and psychology to alleviate the effects of inner city despair and poverty and and to uplift the least fortunate and then they realized that if we were going to put this on public television, it wasn't just going to reach poor urban kids; it was going to reach uh, more affluent kids in in suburbs and and white people as well as people of color, and so they knew that they could scale up these little trial programs that Morissette was doing at the Carnegie Corporation, where you the, reach, the reach was in the hundreds of people. If we did this on, on television, the reach would be in the millions of people. And so, yes, they went into television for the most altruistic of reasons, to help children out of, out of a, a dark place.
0: It does feel like the most radical of reasons to enter that medium I, that that feels exactly right um, and the idea of of um, addressing young urban children was so striking to me because I will admit to you and I'm a little embarrassed to admit this to you I never considered the set of Sesame Street a whole lot that this was this was a cityscape right this was an urban setting um and this was something that these kids were could actually relate to and yet it was vibrant and lively but still unmistakably this was a city and that um only in retrospect was I like wow right that that absolutely did do that and yet this does to my um reading of your book this doesn't feel like it was that easy a ride for um for the creators right they were called uh taking the task for not necessarily representing um, African-Americans properly, uh, not representing urban life properly. there was uh, they, they had to overcome certain challenges, even coming into it with this altruism and some degree of research uh, suggesting this is the direction we should go in teaching numbers and ABCs and whatnot.
1: Well, John, the fact that you as a, as a kid viewer never registered that it was kind of radical for it to be an urban setting, and that you never thought about it. That's a great triumph of the the, the foresight and, and sort of the vision the vision of the people who created Sesame Street, because John Stone. Uh, was the first producer of Sesame Street what, what today they would call a showrunner, the guy who took the the abstract ideas and turned them into a, t- a TV show and John Stone said, yeah, I want to be in what 's basically a facsimile of a Harlem neighborhood with with a, 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 a town a townhouse with a big brown house or brownstone stoop as its center and if you look at the early episodes of Sesame Street, it looks deliberately kind of run down, way more so than the set does of the current show, where you mm-hmm. see graffiti. You see graffiti on the walls. You see dented garbage cans, including the one that Oscar lives in. You see uh, laundry strung on lines uh, hanging behind, behind the buildings and houses on the set. So it's not an affluent neighborhood, and, and it's a, it, it was actually kind of controversial to put forth something that quote-unquote gritty, but they also, as you alluded to, John, they were getting it from both sides. People said this is too gritty for children to watch, and then there were uh, some some black scholars and 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 critics who were saying this presents too idealized a vision. Like there were actually people saying, "Why isn't it more dire? Why don't they show uh, drunks on the street? Why don't why is there more right. garbage on the street?" And so it was threading that needle to uh, represent experience in a way that was uh, Real and Dr. Lloyd Morissette, uh, again, the co-founder of Joan Gans Cooney, he told me that they actually considered making it more garbage-strewn and 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 making it rougher, but then they realized in their research that this was insufficiently aspirational to young kids. They didn't want to turn on something that looked too real, but just real enough where they could recognize their their own lives in it. So again, it was really threading a, a needle, calibrating it very specifically. And the last point I'll make about this is. This show was so rigor- rigorously prepared and researched. It took three years from when Lloyd Morissette and Joan Gans Cooney kind of had the idea to when the show premiered, which was November 10, 1969. So three years of preparation and research on the entertainment side of it, on the psychological side of it, and, and just on the, um, the, the curricular side of it, working with, with teachers and college professors.
0: Well, I think it was really cool. Like, and I'm not sure what Sesame Street that I'm about to cite here, but the research was so in depth um, for some of these programs that if I remember right, uh, they were determining whether having like the writing, having the word that they're talking about on the bottom of the screen versus the center of the screen, whether which of these is going to be more usable as a Teaching tool. That's how that's how sophisticated the research was to make sure that the kids were learning. Am I correct about that?
1: You are. That's actually more the electric company, which is kind of the, the older sibling program,
0: or the, the newer show, but the older
1: sibling program of Sesame Street that the children's television workshop premiered just two years after Sesame Street. You graduate to the electric company, where uh, you know, Sesame Street back then was aimed at the four and five-year-olds. Electric Company was more uh, you know, 6, 7, 8, nine, 10, 11 in that range as you're learning to read and then you're, you're, you're carrying on with uh, developing your reading skills. And the default presumption was that, yeah, words should appear on the bottom of the screen because that's how subtitles work in foreign films and, and, and things like that. But then they realized, no, the kids naturally, their eyes will go to More of the top or the middle of the screen. So that's when, in a electric company, when you would would Rita Moreno or Morgan Freeman would say a word, it would appear above their head. Um, And one other point uh, I want to make about Mister Rogers' Neighborhood, um, about where things appear on the screen, is that Fred Rogers. Everyone thinks that he was just a nice man who was just winging it, kind of making up his, his his episodes on the fly. And he too was working with developmental psychologists on Mr. Rogers' neighborhood, specifically with him, a pediatric psychologist in Pittsburgh named Dr. Margaret McFarland. and There's way more pediatric psychiatry in Mr. Rogers' neighborhood than you'd ever realize. For example, when Mr. Rogers walked in singing It's a Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, and he walks screen left to screen right as he enters his house, that was deliberately conceived because they wanted kids eyes to track from screen left to screen right because in the English language that's how you learn to read by your eyes scanning left to right so that's how much rigor and forethought went into all of these programs
0: David I have to tell you listening to you talk about this and 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 reading about it it gives me goosebumps because you know you to think back on these programs and to recognize how much work and rigor went into the research behind you know what you're actually seeing there it does feel like this perfect amalgam of creativity and and cognitive science and um, and and maybe what's going on culturally I think about that a lot too and whether there is um, something about what was happening there and, and that, you know, maybe this was only going to take place between 1968 and 1975. Do you have any thoughts about that? Because this is like this, you know, there's an awful lot going on in the world, in the, in the United States during that period of time, you know, it's almost bizarre to me that these optimists are, um, deciding, you know, we're going to go after early childhood education via television, um, during this really tumultuous cultural time, and yet I suspect there's reason to it that maybe I don't quite fully understand.
1: Well, yeah, well, it was clearly um, not unlike our, our present day, a, a period of intense activism, uh, you know, because the Vietnam War was going on, so there was big anti-war efforts, and it was you know, still very much the civil rights era, and it was the feminist era, she had a lot of different waves of, uh, of activism, uh, or, or some of which uh, mixed together. And for a lot of, you know, for some people who were involved in this, they said this is our form of activism. Like we weren't necessarily, uh, you know, hippie types who were out, who were, uh, you know, protesting by living an alternative lifestyle. And we weren't necessarily the most uh, take to the streets people, but we were like take to the screens, basically. Rita Moreno, Rita Moreno, who I interviewed for the book, um, she told me that for her, all of her actor friends said, don't do it. Don't take the job in the electric company because you'll be forever more pigeonholed as just a children's performer. And Bear in mind, Rita Moreno had already won an Oscar for playing Anita in West Side Story. She'd just been in Mike Nichols' movie, Carnal Knowledge, where she played, of all things, a prostitute. Imagine going straight from playing a prostitute to being on the electric company, um, which which wouldn't even be allowed today. Like it would disqualify you. What Rita Moreno said was, "This was public service in every sense of the word public, including the salary, meaning it paid terribly to be on the electric company." But she said, "I looked at my daughter, and her daughter is again someone my age and your age, a Generation X girl." And she said, "Like that was all I needed to do. I knew that we had to do better educationally." And um, a a similar, a similar thing I'd add is Jim Henson, um, who, you know, coming onto Sesame Street with the Muppets and all the other skills that Jim Henson brought, that changed Sesame Street, and probably Sesame Street would not be enduring 51 years later without the Muppets. Jim Henson was another one of these people who was not overtly political or activist, but. When he saw what the Sesame Street people were trying to do, and he had four kids, soon to be five, and the fourth of his five kids, actually, John Paul Henson, had learning disabilities and was really struggling in preschool when Jim Henson was asked to come aboard Sesame Street. And so Jim Henson, suddenly more than normal, really interested in how preschool learning worked. And so he said, sure. And he was making a fortune in advertising, but he kind of... For for went all of that. If I use, the past of forego for went, <laughs> um, how well how well did these shows educate us, John? But he basically gave that lucrative <laughs> advertising work up to work on Sesame Street again. So that was their form of activism. You didn't have to be an activist wearing a headband and holding a peace sign in the street necessarily. This was a form of activism.
0: Yeah, absolutely, um, uh, and. I, I'm thinking of back to when I was... So you, you and I were talking before we started, and I work a lot with teen and tween-age kids and their parents. And I'm thinking back to when I was a kid and when I stopped watching some of these shows. And I would imagine that most of us, or, or actually at least some percentage of us, were watching some of the shows intended for much younger kids at much older ages you know i'm 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 just remembering that you know i was certainly i had a younger brother and i know that all the entire time he was watching sesame street for example i was certainly watching that and that brought me into like probably fourth grade fifth grade and i don't remember ever getting bored with it or thinking it was childish or anything like that mr rogers neighborhood the same and yet some of these shows you're saying like zoom i remember that was clearly geared a little toward a little hipper, a little older audience. Um, did you feel the same, did you make the same transitions or, you know, or was it like a little cleaner for you? Did you get sick of it at some point and realize, ah, that's for kids?
1: I think that I kept watching The Electric Company and Sesame Street long
0: after they were quote unquote age appropriate
1: because they were so good. They're just so darned entertaining. Yeah. Uh, John Stone, who I mentioned earlier is the first showrunner of Sesame Street he said that Joan Ganz Cooney's brilliant masterstroke was that the failings of previous attempts at educational TV the big one was that they tried to turn teachers into entertainers and Joan Ganz Cooney's brilliance was to turn entertainers into teachers meaning you you take seasoned people from network television and commercial TV like John Stone who was really good at it he'd worked like Captain Kangaroo, and he'd work for like uh, CBS Comedies, and you you w- have them work with, with uh, professors and teachers, so they learn how to apply their entertainment skills to education. And so you have shows like the Electric Company and Sesame Street, which even adults who didn't even have children were watching. You know, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, it, it's amazing. There were articles in the early seventies about how like all sorts of adults, like Orson Welles. Love to walk Sesame Street when it first came on, and so did George Plimpton. Like, and these they may have had children, but they were not watching to be good parents. They were watching on their own, uh, and we, we're, Zoom is an interesting case because Zoom was created by a guy at WGBH, Boston's public TV station, named Christopher Sarson, who also co-created Masterpiece Theater. So a really fertile-minded guy, and to, to sort of the, the, the better audience, the John Duffy audience. Um, Christopher Sarson and his wife recognized something that's very uh, applicable to, to, to what you do, which is that his kids were entering that tween phase and they, they suddenly had social inhibitions that they might not have had when they were younger, when they were uh, five and six. You know, that, that, that veil of inhibition that, that, that comes over kids when they're, when they're turning nine, 10, 11, because they're suddenly way more self aware. So he had this idea of what if I assembled a cast of seven kids? I'm not going to use professional performers. I'm just going to cast kids, local Boston kids or Boston area kids of uh, different genders and ethnicities in that nine to thirteen age range, and, and we're going to, you know, we're going to we're going to have adults mediate them and and give them instruction. But no adults will be seen on screen. It's just seven kids with crazy mop top or crazy overgrown 1970s hair, wearing jeans and rugby shirts romping about this set um, and using user-generated content, meaning have, you know, before that was a thing, having kids that age, tween age, right in saying, I want to see you guys do this. I want to see you do that. And then also have these kids um, have what they call Zoom wraps, in which they actually talked about current events and their own feelings. And this is so captivating that this program ran from 1972 to 1977, turning over the cast every you know eight weeks or so. And it was magnificent. And that show, I can attest, um, was so cool. And I, I watched that when it was age appropriate for me. And again, a little bit afterwards, even when I was already, you know, a little old for it, I still thought, this is so cool. And those Zoom kids are way cooler than I am, but in a good way, not in an aspirational I can never be like that, meaning I can someday grow into someone like that.
0: Well, it kind of speaks to exactly what you're saying, this idea of bringing people who are already kind of entertainers into the educational sphere as opposed to the other way around. Um, I share your um, love for Zoom. I was crazy about that show and the idea of the user-generated content. I I remember feeling how revolutionary that was. And um, I was going to write to you about this, but I thought I'd save it for now. My younger brother and I, I remember the P.O. box and the area code because there was a song affiliated with it. Right. And we sent in a couple ideas. They never made the air, but we would just like be wrapped, you know, in front of the TV whenever that show was on. You know, just waiting for the potential for the possibility that maybe, maybe our thing could be on TV, and that idea alone um, had us right there watching it. But I remember thinking the same thing: these kids are really cool, and I wanna, I wanna be a part of whatever this is. Uh, it felt like looking into a different sphere of being. That you know, like, and it was kind of that cool sphere, that looser, easier sphere. Um, that I think you know, kind of drew us in as tweens, and um, and what a clever, what a clever way to keep kids engaged. And I don't know that it ever crossed my mind that we were learning anything at all. Right,
1: and, and what's funny about and Zoom is such a perfect example of marrying uh, kind of curriculum or, or, or uh, lessons to to uh, professional learning because you have these kids. They were actually kids like with comically strong Boston accents and in some like like real, real, real like like pack the kayak kind of stuff. Um, but they but also they got this great uh, musician and composer named a young guy named Newton Wayland who loved teaching kids music and he's the one who could turn the mailing address. Of that, uh, of uh, Zoom into into a little Patter song, box three five zero. Oh, Soft and Matt, four. Oh, one,
0: one, three, four.
1: four. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See, the, and the, <laughs> and the fact that um, that it's it's um, these things are indelible to us, sort of like the Sesame Street songs too. Like I've got two eyes, one two. They're both the same size, one two. What I find is they weren't just sticky these songs in the sense of sticky in that they stick in your head so that when you're watching as a kid and then you go to school, you remember the lessons that are taught. They're, they're, they're beyond sticky and that they're indelible, meaning that even if you're 50 years old, you can still remember these songs and you can still sing them and you can still remember the lessons they impart. And sometimes in my case, I've used these songs with my children when they were young, when I was raising them.
0: And so, so like,
1: that's how shrewd it was to marry education to entertainment in a skillful way.
0: Yeah, and so, and I was going to ask you about your kids. I don't know exactly how old your kids are. My son, George, is 25, um, and I think as I'm reading your book, I was thinking, I wonder if he has, if he carries the same kind of memories. He watched things like Blue's Clues, and I think you cite that in your book and a couple of other shows that had some degree of stickiness and some degree of learning, but it felt kind of demonstrably different, um, and, um, and more entertainment based and maybe a little more, I don't know, silly or goofy, um, uh, and, 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 less takeaway, you know, more like kind of character driven maybe. Um, and so I worry that, you know, like, I don't know if kids, the kids I work with today or even older kids carry those same memories and have learned those same, you know, nuggets in those early years in the same way.
1: Well, I wouldn't dismiss what uh, kids, the kids you work with today, have learned. Because, like for example, there was a reboot of Zoom in the '90s that uh, you know I I was not paying attention because I was I was a young man in the '90s. But but that show is still held dear to the people who grew up with it. And I think a lot of the stuff that's like the kids who are watching Paw Patrol right now will tell you in 20 years that Paw Patrol shaped them in this really positive way. So I don't want to denigrate anything that people are taking it now. All that said, I do think that Sesame Street and the other programs I read about are outliers in that they are particularly influential for a couple of reasons. One was simply that we lived in more of a monoculture back then, John, where we all watched the same TV shows. We all listened to the same top 40 songs because you know the, the cultural landscape wasn't so atomized as it is now with right. a million channels and a million streaming services and, and so forth. But, but the other big thing is that um, I think just to go back to the idea of rigor and preparation, Sesame Street was so meticulously assembled that you see, you see the benefits of the work that was put into it. And I don't think there's been any program, even all the other ones I mentioned very flatteringly like Zoom, like the electric company at Schoolhouse Roth, well, nothing has ever surpassed Sesame Street in terms of you know, comprehensive greatness, in terms of imparting lessons being a great watch, uh, having cultural resonance across different cultures within the American experience. And so nothing has ever topped Sesame Street, and particularly early Sesame Street, in terms of influence. I think mean, just because it had the most work put into it.
0: Yeah, that makes, that makes so much sense. And, um, and what, one detail that I think is, is so great is the pacing of Sesame Street that you talk about and that some of, some of the other shows I think have picked up on as well, that they picked up, I think you, you cite Laughing Ronan Martin's laugh as kind of a model for some of the pacing of Sesame Street. And I hadn't really thought about that a whole lot either, that it really did move from one scene to the next, to the next, to the next, um, really rather quickly and that that was all very deliberate.
1: Right. And laughing, you know, to, to your listeners under 45 was a late 60s comedy sketch show that was really radical for the time, but also kind of fit in with the times. It was like the late 60s psychedelic era. It had very psychedelic colors, but the pacing was really, really fast, meaning like sketches could last 15 seconds and you go bounce from one thing to another and it was visually stimulating. And Joan Ganz Cooney said, I want to apply this to children's television. And that's why, especially early. Street is kind of it's still very Beatles influenced and psychedelia <laughs> influenced. And the pacing and, and kind of the, the 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 colors of it and, and the, the the sort of visual stimulus of it is all kind of overwhelming or not overwhelming but, but very it floods the senses and it was considered controversial at the time. Um, what I say is what the adult critics didn't understand is that kids like you and me, when we were preschoolers back then. We were already TV literate, just like kids coming up today are born basically looking at screens from you know, the moment they are given a tablet or something, which is not always the greatest thing. But for better and for worse, we were TV literate the way that our parents were, and in my case, I older siblings. My older siblings were not TV literate the way I was or stimulus literate, I will say. So to you and me and our peers, Sesame Street made perfect sense. Meaning it wasn't overstimulating. It was perfect for us. And we were sponges and we soaked it up. And it was funny. It was actually a bit of controversy or dissension. And that Fred Rogers, who had that slow, languid Mr. Rogers pace to his show, he thought Sesame Street, originally, Mr. Rogers didn't care for Sesame Street a whole lot. He thought it moved too fast and it was too overwhelming for kids. And then the Sesame Street. People by the same token, they thought he was corny and he was yesterday's news. Sonia Manzano, who played Maria, said, Yeah, we were the smart ass, druggy generation. We thought that he was like (laughs) passe. Well, what's funny is everyone has since achieved a reckoning or or a detente where where Mr. Rogers, Fred Rogers, came to love Sesame Street and he paid a visit to Sesame Street where he hung out with Big Bird. And then uh, reciprocally, uh, Big Bird, played, uh, who was played by Carol Spinney, he paid a visit to uh, the neighborhood of make-believe and Mr. Rogers, and these two shows later really came to support each other, um, but at the time, they were they were kind of two very different philosophies and approaches, which to a young kid like you or me, they were complimentary, like Sesame Street was your fast-paced fun show and Mr. Rogers was kind of your, your chill-out show, but at the time, the adults couldn't see that that it was a it wasn't a binary choice you know that you that you could enjoy mo- both shows
0: A 100% and and I um yes that was my the rhythm of my day i remember like having both shows built into the day and that that there was this kind of laconic ease to uh mr Rogers' excitement around around sesame street i will say that reading the passage in your book where finally détente was achieved and they visited each other's shows that was a great joy to me that I was wholly unaware of, that I really wanted that re- revolut- resolution between these these two, <laughs> yeah. two uh, factions. I was so relieved to hear that that actually took yeah, place.
1: No, 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 one, no, one, no one liked the idea of Fred Rogers having beef with anyone. So, uh, <laughs> so, so, listeners, the beef was resolved. You can go to bed tonight knowing the beef was
0: resolved. Exactly. So, David, I could talk to you all day about this stuff it is it is fun to hear you talk about it and hear your passion for sesame street i can tell in particular and and the the rigor and the excitement and the uh, creativity with which it was it was created over and over and over again for the better part of what 50 years or so um
1: it's now 51 years as of uh, uh,
0: next Man, so but i'm kind of curious as you point out right um we were dealing with a few channels on TV. We were, you and I listened, we could probably cite some of the same radio that we were listening to at the time. Now, kids have this broad spectrum of entertainment coming at them um, and educational entertainment coming at them. Can you imagine, given the you know, we're uh, again at a time of great social movement and social change, um, this is not unlike, in some ways, 1968, 1969. Can you imagine any kind of movement for today's three, four, five-year-olds or nine, 10, 11, 12-year-olds?
1: You know, until recently, I don't know if I could have imagined something having that scale of impact that you just described. However, this pandemic and remote learning um, have combined to create this question that was exactly the one that was being asked 50 odd years ago, which is can can screens be used to teach? It was a controversial question in the 60s. Can can television be used to teach? And now, look, for a generation, we know that we're gonna be in this new semi-normal where we're gonna have to be prepared to have some sort of screen-based learning, remote learning, Zoom or whatever-based learning. Now I am talking about the teleconferencing and not the WGBH show. <laughs> because because we know that no matter what, even if there's a vaccine and 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 you know in a year and a half time we're we're not worried about COVID 19, it's going to be for a generation always in the back of our minds that this could happen at any time. Lockdown could happen at any time. So we'd never want to repeat 2020. In that, I feel so bad for anyone who has uh, school age kids because mine are in the early 20s, and I feel so bad for teachers because everyone had to muddle through. An improvised on the fly response to now the schools are closed down. How are we going to educate our kids? So, suddenly, we're faced with a question a lot like the one that faced Joan Gans Cooney and Lloyd Morris at the late 60s. How can we effectively use screens to teach? So, I do think that we do need to uh, reconsider curriculum and, and, and work in this idea of like, how can we? And honestly, the biggest question to me is I know educators really want to do this. It's how can we get entertainment people. How can we enlist entertainment professionals, whether they're in Hollywood or Chicago or New York, to kind of pitch in on their part so we have this ideal fusion that Sesame Street achieved of entertainment and education so that remote learning, you know, in as much as it's used, is not just this chore or this thing where the parents constantly have to monitor the kids to see if they're paying attention? So I kind of do have this weird optimism that out of necessity, we're going to be forced. To achieve something of Sesame Street's magnitude again,
0: I, I love that idea, and I, I do think you're right that, that the pandemic oddly provides opportunity. Um, the book I, I want to stress.
1: I'm sorry. Yeah. I want to stress quickly that um, the pandemic was not conceived by me as a marketing opportunity. <laughs> I, I did not intend for Sunny Days to come out during a pandemic.
0: <laughs> that is a fair note, David. Um, the book is called the, "The Book Is Called Sunny Days: The Children's Television Revolution That Changed America." Um, David, man, you are so fun to talk to, and um, I am just absolutely energized by your energy and your ideas. Uh, I kind of insist that we talk again on this podcast sometime soon. Would you be up for that? Gladly, I'd love to. In the meantime. Seriously, go out and buy Sunny Days. It is uh, whether you are wistful for Sesame Street and the electric company and Zoom or whether you uh, just want a really great read in depth to something that you think you know everything about. You will learn a heck of a lot if you read David Camp's book. Um, David, if we want to know more about you, where do we find you?
1: Uh, DavidCamp.com. All you have to remember is Camp is with a K. So David, dot
0: That's David Camp with a K. David, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Oh, it was my pleasure, Dr. John.
0: All right. Take care, man.